A lot of people are hoping the new year brings them a new job. The nation's jobless numbers hit record highs at the end of last year. Good morning. I'm George Boraki, and this is Cityscape on 90.7 FM and WFUV.org. Coming up on this morning's show, advice for the unemployed from Bronx business writer Nicholas Nigro. Tell everyone that you're unemployed. Also today, inauguration bound. President-elect Obama has invited the New York City marching band to perform at his swearing-in. The Brooklyn Steppers are now trying to come up with the money to get there. We'll hear from them later in the show. I'm walking legacies right now. Well, when I get there. And something to exercise our smiling muscles this morning. Coming up, my interview with the cartoon editor of The New Yorker magazine. That cityscape for January 3rd, 2009. Yes, 2009. Glad you're with us. We kick things off this morning with advice on how to turn unemployment lemons into refreshing lemonade. A lot of people are starting the new year without a job. The unemployment rate is up in New York City and across the nation. But being out of work is not an excuse to stay in bed depressed and feeling sorry for yourself. So says Bronx resident Nicholas Nigro. He's the author of a new book called No Job, No Prob. How to pay your bills, feed your mind, and have a blast when you're out of work. Nicholas, welcome to Cityscape. I'm glad to be here. Thank you. I guess this book couldn't have come at a better time, huh? It's very propitious. I completed the book at the end of uh, May, is when I submitted it to the publisher, and things were pretty bad then. And when it was due for publication in November, there had been the economic meltdown, and so it takes on an you know, even added meaning in just the several months since I submitted it. When did you and conceive of the idea for this book? It was last the winter, I'd say February or so. And the idea of the book was to sort of marry traditional and non-traditional advice. The first half of the book, I talk about all the traditional things you should do. You know, first thing you do is if you qualify for unemployment benefits, apply for them immediately. If there are some severance issues, I mean, see what you can get. And then start placing your resumes on your monster.com hot jobs, comb the classifieds. Then there's the non-traditional, I think, uh, that people really don't look into, and that is tell everyone that you're unemployed because the more people who know about it, the more people that they know, and it just expands your network and increases the possibility that you'll find a job or find a new career. A lot of people, though, are embarrassed to admit that they're unemployed. Yeah, absolutely. And that's, it's counterproductive. It really is. And uh, I mean, your first reaction is sort of to ensconce yourself in your apartment and not let anyone know. But, you know, when you get right down to it, if you have all your friends, neighbors, relatives, and they own businesses, they work in places, they know people, and I mean, just let everyone know. Do you have first-hand experience being yes. unemployed? You do? Yes. How long of a stretch? I was down and out uh, a few times along the way, and uh, I had a, a serious medical issue that really left me floored you know, with a pile of bills, and I didn't know where I was going to turn next. But staying positive and just, I mean, moving forward, doing what you have to do, and it's so true. What is the alternative? <laughs> What were you doing at the time when you first lost your job? I worked in uh, retail. I was in the pet industry for many years, and, and the business that I was in sold out to Petco. They were like an independent. So then I really didn't know what I was going to do. Like, 
that's what I had done for like 17 years. And then I tried all sorts of things, like I even sold things on eBay. Uh, I mean, I was just doing anything to try to, uh, you know, make some income. And, you know, one of the things that's important is also to be creative at this time. I mean, think of what do you do best? Uh, you know, what talents do you have? And it turned out that I had some talent for writing, and I have slowly but surely parlayed it into something. And People need to think outside of the box. Yeah, absolutely. We get so stuck in what we do for a living that yeah. we sometimes think we can't do anything else. Yeah, absolutely. And that's the type of thing that I talk about in the book. Just explore every avenue. When people are unemployed, you talked about how you sold things on eBay. What other things can people do to make an income while they're out of work? If you are capable of painting a room, advertise your services as a house painter. If you're handy, advertise your services as a handyman. And of course, eBay is a good example. Clear out your closets of stuff. Uh, if you have you know, 2,000 CDs and you, and you don't listen to them anymore, sell them individually on eBay. And by doing that, you're not jeopardizing your unemployment. No, absolutely not. When you're unemployed, you're bound to get the question, so what do you do? Maybe you're at a party and someone's going to ask you, what do you do? How do you answer that question? Well, you have the opportunity to do the safe and benign one, like I'm between jobs, or if you feel like you know, saying something like I'm an unemployment benefits collector, I've been downsized to a couch potato, I'm presently a jobless statistic, I'm in a work stoppage, and then my favorite is I'm a jobless engineer seeking a change in careers. Because really, that is what it's all about. You refer to the unemployed in the book as transitory retirees. I loved yeah, that phrase. Yeah, that was a good one. Because <laughs> that's really what it is. And in very few instances do people remain down and out. Most people will recover, and rather nicely at that. Your book includes a who's who of the formerly unemployed, people like Michael J. Fox and Oprah Winfrey. Now, clearly, they are examples of, you know what? You can get through this. J.K. Rowling, uh, William Shatner, for instance, who was living in his van. And this was after Star Trek. He was so down and out, he was doing, like, house parties and stuff like that for money. So the whole point of that is that, you know, things do turn around. Tell us the story about Rich Cavello, who I guess you probably know personally, correct? Yes. In the 1970s, he graduated from Manhattan College, and uh, he was working in... All kinds of retail businesses. He was working at uh, Macy's, A&S. And then he just concluded that this was not the kind of life he wanted to lead. He really wanted to own his own business. So during some period of unemployment, he had a few periods of unemployment between jobs. He decided, I'm going to open my own business. And a neighbor of his suggested, why don't you look into the pet industry? And this was... This was in the late 70s, 1979. And most people thought of the pet industry then as really just a grimy, dirty, dead-end street. But this fellow said that this is a really upcoming field and business. So there was a store available in Little Neck, Queens. $12,000, I believe the price was. It was called Pet Nosh. So he, along with my brother Joe, who was 19 years old at the time, and a student of Fordham University, by the way, <laughs> They purchased that store. It was just a small mom and pop. And then through the years, they just started expanding. They did a wholesale business, and then when another store opened up, they bought that in Yonkers. But as the years wore on, 
they started opening up larger stores, and they had to to compete against Petco and PetSmart. So to make a long story short, you know, Rich was unemployed. He opened up a business. He took a chance with a, a rather minimal investment. He uh, borrowed some money from his, his parents as well. And 17 years later, he sold the business for $19.1 million to Petco. He had a five-year non-compete clause that he couldn't get back into the same business. So five years and one day later, he opened up another superstore called Pet Goods, which is now in Scarsdale mm-hmm. and other places. And he's competing rather successfully against the bigwigs, Petco and PetSmart. So, what an inspirational story. Yeah. From unemployed to selling your business for $19 million. Yeah, yeah. You just need to take some initiative. Absolutely, yeah. What's your advice to people who are afraid to take that step to do something different? You know, when things are going bad for you, you really have no choice almost, and you have to. And I think, what do you have to lose? Take that chance, especially when you're at a point where, I mean, what's the alternative? You want to wait for that same type of job in the same field or a job that's going to pay you, you know, $30,000 less than the previous jobs. When you're out of work, you often find yourself with a lot of idle time. You have recommendations in your book as to what to do with that time. Some of the stuff is tongue-in-cheek and humorous, but I think the key point is to do things, to stay active, and simultaneously, when you're active out there and meeting people, you're expanding your network. You go and take your dog to one of those dog runs... You have all these other people, they have jobs, they have relatives who run businesses, they know this person, that person. So whether it's going to the yoga class, taking a free workshop course, it's good to increase your knowledge, your education, and also to meet people. It's another you know, reason why you should be active and out there instead of staying in your house and crying into your cereal bowl because it'll increase your chances of success down the road. Yeah, it's easy to become a recluse when oh, you're unemployed. Oh, it is. Yeah, yeah, it really is. I mean, to stay and watch, you know, a Beverly Hillbillies marathon or something. One thing that you do recommend to people is to write letters to prominent people. Why is that? Well, that actually was just an activity to, uh, to stimulate your brain. I mean, I used to do that when I was younger. I used to write to all these politicians and celebrities and sports figures and a certain percentage of them, you do get stuff back. And it's better to get some interesting stuff in the mail than bills and, and, and the like. Nicholas Nigro, the book is No Job, No Prob, How to Pay Your Bills, Feed Your Mind, and Have a Blast When You're Out of Work. Thank you so much for your time. I thank you for having me. No Job, No Prob is out now from Skyhorse Publishing. You're tuned to Cityscape on 90.7 FM and WFUV.org. Good morning once again. I'm George Boldarki. One of my New Year's resolutions is to finally take a crack at the New Yorker magazine's cartoon caption contest. A new book gives us a look at the winners and runners-up of past competitions. The New Yorker's cartoon editor, Bob Mankoff, is with us now to talk about that book and more. Good morning, Bob. Hey, good morning to you. How long have you been the cartoon editor at The New Yorker now? Uh, let's see, since 1997. So whatever, whatever the math turns out on that, I'll, I'll have to go along with. Do you have a lot of laughs on the job? I do, although it, the job is probably a little bit different than people think in that I see about 1,000 cartoons every week for the 15 or 17 or whatever it is that go in the magazine each week. I take about 30 or 40 of those to David Remnick, and he makes the ultimate decision. So 
people sort of think of the job as a cartoon editor is that the idea of the cartoons is to entertain me, and really my job is one of discrimination, selection, some editing, so uh, I know great sympathy won't go out for me, but it, it actually is a job. How many cartoonists are you dealing with? Uh, I guess about 30 regular cartoonists, and then anybody can submit, and seemingly everybody does. I probably, from our regular cartoonists, I get about 600 cartoons a week. Each cartoonist might do, I don't know, 15, 20 cartoons a week. And then um, everybody, not everybody, but a lot of people want to be cartoonists, and a lot of people have a single idea for a cartoon, and those come in over the transom, and then every once in a while we do publish new cartoons as well. What separates the funny from the not funny? Well, I think funny is too big a category. You know, funny can be America's funniest home videos, people falling down to jaunty music, right? But that's not exactly what we're looking for. I think the thing that the New Yorker is the actual cartoons, and this distinguishes it somewhat from the caption contest, is sort of humor with a point. You might look at it the way you differentiate comedy from farce, in that comedy is funny, but the point of comedy is to get across some idea. So I think the best New Yorker cartoons do that. They actually get across an idea about our culture, our times, ourselves. And I think that's what we're looking for overall. And, of course, we publish silly stuff as well because it can't be all, all humor can't be purposeful. Now, of course, you said anyone can get involved with the New Yorker cartoons, and one way to do it is through the Cartoon Caption Contest. There's a new collection of cartoons out now from Andrews McMeal Publishing, this one offering a look at the winners and runners-up in the Cartoon Caption Contest. Tell us about how we got to this point. What's the history behind the New Yorker Caption Writing Contest? There have been caption contests before, uh, even uh, you know, at other magazines, other times when I was younger. I to see they used to have one in punch and so when i became cartoon editor and we published our first cartoon issue i thought hey why don't we have a caption contest why don't we open this up to other people and we did and for a number of years maybe two or three we had it in the cartoon issue and it only occurred once a year and then david remnick had the idea saying well could we run it every week and of course everybody said no how could you run it every week? Because thousands of people have turned out submit, and we've got to publish every week. So when would you have time to judge it, really? But we cudgeled our brains. We worked out a staggered system where, where every week there's a new contest. There's a contest that you vote on, and there's a winner of another contest. So it tends to be sort of a five-week process from where the cartoon you see gets in the magazine to it's finally decided which one is the winner. So that's sort of the history of it. And now there's been over well over a million entries to it. We get between five and 10,000 entries every week. I understand that more men than women enter the caption right. writing contest. Why do you think that is? I think because men's sense of humor isn't any better, but they have a higher opinion of it. <laughs> Generally, I think it goes a little bit to socialization in, in our culture. Men will tend to try to be more humorous more than women. They'll tend to tell more jokes. I mean, to some extent, being funny and funny in a group in a social situation can be a little bit way of showing your dominance. So I think it has something to do with the culture. But thousands and thousands and thousands of women enter the contest, and they won it as well. Do captions come in from all over the place, or are they largely from New York? The captions naturally come over from more from the places from which the subscription of the New Yorker is largest, like California and New York, but there have been winners from, from everywhere and from every and they come in from every state. Is there a trick to caption writing? I think the trick is this, that there's no formula for it, and that if you go about it in a logical way, 
you can't come up with anything. You can't solve this problem by what's called convergent thinking. So for a crossword puzzle, there's one right answer that's going to work in those particular squares. For a caption contest, if I have a normal boardroom and they're all men and they all have parrots on their shoulder and I, the CEO doesn't have a parrot and, and one guy is turning to the other and he's going to say something, you've got to come up with the with the caption. Now, what might he say? Well, there's no really logical way to do it. You have to sort of free associate. What do you know about parrots? Well, they repeat things. They can be a little messy. They poop. They, uh, pirates have them, right? And from these free associations, you will sort of let your mind go. So one of the answers with this boardroom in which there are parrots and everybody's uh, shoulders, one guy turns to another and say, Dave, we've got to think of a better way to record our meetings. Because why? Well, parrots repeat things. Another one might be, shut up, Bob. Everybody knows your parrot's a clip-on. And literally, there would be thousands of other possible answers. Your mind can't possibly sort through them like it would through a logical problem where the number of answers are limited. So all I can say really is that you have to let your unconscious work at it and free associate. And then and it takes a little bit of talent. I mean, you have to do something that's unexpected, and you have to make sense out of this nonsense. That answer, shut up, Bob, everyone knows your parrot's a clip-on, is somewhat absurd. Does it help to bring in a little bit of absurdity into these captions? Well, I think it depends. You know, one caption isn't better than another. It's subjective. So that caption is more absurd than the first one. And depending on your sense of humor, you will like it more or less. You know, one of the dimensions on which humor and the appreciation of humor varies is how much resolution do we need in the joke? In other words, how much sense do we have to make out of the joke? And the first one, the parrot one, the repeating makes a certain type of sense, and the other makes less. So it's really a, it's really a question of taste. I would say that the readers of The New Yorker who are probably have a greater taste for absurdity than maybe the readers of Family Circus. One cartoon caption winner wrote online that readers of The New Yorker aren't the kind of people who like to laugh out loud. So your caption should elicit, at best, a mild chuckle. He writes that the first filter for your caption should be, is it too funny? Will it make anyone laugh out loud? If so, he says, throw it out and work on a less funny one. Is there any truth to that? Of course, what he's saying is a joke. <laughs> you know, that, that's part of it. Mm-hmm. That's a tongue-in-cheek thing, which has an element of truth in it. And the element of truth in it is that the things that make us laugh the loudest, the hardest, are not very clever. Slapstick, uh, people falling down, the three stooges, or in your own experience, you know, some little mistake that happens at a party that you remember. Things that make us laugh, you know, the hardest are our own personal experience, and there's nothing wrong with that. It's great. They do make us laugh. But the, the idea behind, like a New Yorker cartoon, always involves some cognitive part, something that we a little bit of a puzzle that we have to put together. So if I have a cartoon that's called French Army Knife, and the knife just has corkscrews. Well, you get it, but it's something that you really have to get. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I was going to say, what do you make of people who just don't get the New Yorker cartoons? God bless them. I'm not an elitist in this. It's one of the nice things about the New Yorker cartoons and humor in general is, you know, it's like restaurants. Choose the ones that you like. I make the case for the New Yorker cartoons that their main direction, their main import, is not necessarily that they're falling down funny, but that they're insightful. And they can be funny. I mean, in a cartoon of mine, which most people seem to like, there's a guy at a desk and he's looking at his Rolodex and he's saying, no Thursdays out. How about never? It's never good for you. 
okay, you know, maybe people find that funny, maybe they don't. A lot of people think it's interesting because it encapsulates a certain time and place in the way that we live. You know, or a Barbara Smaller cartoon where it's one woman saying to another, uh, sex brought us together, but gender drove us apart. That's the type of humor I think that the New Yorker is known for. It's something to get, and I guess it requires a certain level of sophistication for which we make no apologies. Bob Mankoff, thank you so much for your time. Okay, thank you. Bob Mankoff is cartoon editor of The New Yorker magazine. The New Yorker cartoon caption contest book, The Winners, The Losers, and Everybody in Between, is out now from Andrews McMeal Publishing. These are the sounds of the Brooklyn Steppers Marching Band. The group has performed before crowds at Madison Square Garden, Radio City Music Hall, and Yankee Stadium. But later this month, they hope to be a part of history. The Brooklyn Steppers were invited to perform at President-elect Barack Obama's inauguration parade down Pennsylvania Avenue in Washington, D.C. The band is working hard to raise the money needed for the trip. Earlier this week, I caught up with the Brooklyn Steppers and their director during rehearsals at a Brooklyn school. My name is Tyrone Brown, director for the Brooklyn Steppers Marching Band. Tyrone, I saw you in action. You run a tight ship with these kids. Yes, very much. You know, marching band is very important to us, but more so the discipline that we are able to teach through marching band um, carries over to other areas of their lives. So we're, we're very strict. You were once in their shoes at 13 years old, correct? Very, very correct. Um, I used to be in the same exact group. My director was very hard on us, made sure we got it right. It had a lot to do with the performance and the preparation. But more so, it was very much about um, us learning discipline, us learning um, focus and teamwork and all of us striving for goals. So it's important. It's important to stay, 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 stay hard on them. Tell me about the Brooklyn Steppers, the history behind this band. Yeah, the Brooklyn Steppers is a very unique organization. Since 1989, our inception as the Jackie Robinson Steppers Marching Band we initially started out as. Um, we've been marching parades and large events for many, many years. But this group, we use marching band and music as a magnet to draw kids into our program. Our main goal is academics, you know, academics and character development. Our goal is to take kids from age 8 to 18 off the streets into, into an activity that's very positive, fun for them. Um, give them homework time from 3 to 8 o'clock or 3 to 5.30 and the music time from 5 to 8. Um, it's a free program. Um, kids from Bedford-Stuyvesant, Crown Heights, Flatbush, Canarsie, um, all over East New York and all over Brooklyn come, come to us from different areas, and they rehearse here every day, and they come to us with no experience. A lot of the kids, at least 80% of the kids never played instrument before. How do you get them to the program? Do you have an outreach program yourself? We used to um, do recruitment, all that kind of stuff, but that stuff stopped now. now. Now, all we have to do is open the doors up. The kids come to us automatically. A lot of recruitment right now is word of mouth. People join every day. Every day. Sometimes we got to turn kids away, saying this is no spots available right now. Come back in a month or something like that. But um, kids hear about us through the grapevine and they want to join. Is it the kids or their parents who want them to join? More so the kids. You know, honestly, the kids bring the kids. You know, parents hear about it. I had to convince them that it's a great program because our, our schedule is very hectic. So some concerned parents um, are worried about the travel time at 8 o'clock at night and how often they're here. We have to convince them that the program is worth the sacrifice. That at the end of the day, not only will your child come out a better person, leadership-wise and, 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 and integrity and quality, but academically we'll keep them focused. We'll put them around a group of friends that are very positive. And what parents have to understand is that 
alternative to gang life. Gangs are out here recruiting, so must we. Must be out here the same way to recruit. I was going to ask you the question, what is home life like for these kids? Um, sleep and leave. You know, when you, when you, once you're in this program and you're in the advanced band, you're traveling, performing, you're, very, you're not home very often. You're pretty much um, home um, late at night, 8.30, 9 o'clock at night, to get some rest, get something to eat, finish up your homework, go to bed, school the next day, um, and then back to band again. And in the weekends, we're traveling and performing, competing, so you're not home very often. Church here or there. But as far as street life in their neighborhoods, there are gangs active in their neighborhoods. Oh yeah, this is this is this is the hood. <laughs> this is very very rough neighborhoods. This is where a lot of shootings, a lot of drugs, things like that, a lot of gang violence, a lot of slashings and robberies, and our young people are exposed to that daily. And it's up to them to learn how to avoid those situations. It's up to them to learn how to um, stay far from it and to stay active and keep your mind focused on on a program like this one. Having friends here, giving them that that family life that most gang members are looking for. You know, so we don't, we actually don't, we actually recruit the same way the gangs do. You know, we recruit based on the fact that, hey, come join our family. You know, you need something to do, come join us. You know, so some of the same buzzwords that's used in that negative sense, we use it in a very positive sense. Do you see yourself as saving lives? Oh, definitely. That's, that's, that's the motto, save lives. One student at a time. How many kids do you have? Currently, we have 150 kids in the program. We're taking 104 down to D.C. And um, over the many years, we've sent... 50, 60 kids to college, um, currently in colleges, universities across this country, some of them in the armed forces. Uh, so we have a lot of kids that have a lot of success stories. You said down to D.C. You folks are inauguration bound. We are D.C. bound and we're excited about it. Um, first African-American president obviously has a certain effect on our young people. And from the moment that he won the election, our young people were very excited about applying. And they kind of called it. They kind of said, we're, we're going to get it. You know, they, they're a little cocky. They're a little cocky, but that's how New Yorkers are, you know. But they, they, they said, we're going to get called. We know it. Let's get, let's get ready now. They, they kind of knew from the, from the beginning that they were going to get called. What was the application process like to get picked to play during the inauguration? Well, there's a two-page application that people um, download. And what they do, after you put your basic information, they say, now you may submit any support material you choose. And for us, we, um, we have a lot of material. We have a lot of great stories. We have a lot of um, statistics about our program, um, how students come in um, below average, and how we're able to help them get ready to move them above average. We, 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 we document those things very closely. How many young people we have in colleges, universities across this country, what their current status is at their colleges, uh, how many freshmen we have, how many sophomores, seniors, graduates, how many in, in master's programs, how many of them are doctors, um, um, what city, what state they're in now. We, we kind of keep track of all those things very closely so that our members, um, when it comes time to, to, to talk about what we've done, we can use the stats for us. Do you think the education side of what you do had as much or even more impact on getting selected to perform during the inauguration? I definitely think that that's exactly what put us over. I think the fact that we're a very strong musical group um, got us in the door. But I think what, when it came down to making selections, you know, I think they were looking very much for stories. I looked at the list of the groups that they chose this year as compared to other years, and they were looking for stories. You can tell that they're not just choosing the top universities, the top colleges, the Rose Bowl people, the people who've done the larger, larger Pasadena events, like that. They're looking for people who, have, who are very quality groups who have stories behind them. And there's a few groups inside of this lineup like that, and we definitely, definitely had that. How many marching bands will be making their way down Pennsylvania Avenue? I've heard rumors about, about 100, but the, the, big, the big number is 1,400 bands applied. And for us to be chosen out of that bunch, for them to review 1,400 applications and ours to be one of 10 or one of 100 is still very prestigious. No question that it costs money to bring all of these kids to D.C. Do you have that funding? 
We are currently enrolled in heavy fundraising right now. Um, it's our goal to raise at least $20,000 to send these students down um, comfortably um, to make sure we have the transportation, the lodging, the food, and certain uniform items, certain instruments that we need, make sure they look good and they sound good and they're ready to go. So we're raising the money now. I must say that New Yorkers have come through. How much more do you have to go? We're about halfway there. You know, luckily, this is two weeks. We had about four weeks to raise the money, and um, within the first, within these first two weeks, we received at least ten thousand dollars. So in the next two weeks, we have to raise the next ten, and um, we believe it's going to happen. I see the folks inside wearing yellow T-shirts. Is yellow the band color? Yeah, that's our primary color: maroon, yellow, and white. And um, the gold T-shirts um, they wear every day in rehearsal, supposed to, and it kind of just helps them identify. Again, you talk about gang colors, talk about who represents what, all kind of stuff. We, we we don't change a lot of stuff. You'll see the kids have handshakes, they have sayings, they have sections, they have levels, and who's the leader, who's the section leader, uh, no, in a positive sense. And I think what, that's what keeps our program grounded and keeps the kids coming. Tyrone, thank you so much. Good, thank you. Tyrone Brown is director of the Brooklyn Steppers Marching Band. If you'd like to help them raise the money needed for their trip to D.C., give Tyrone a call at 718-467-1700, extension 765. Once again, that's 718-467-1700, extension 765. The kids in the band clearly can't wait to perform at the presidential inauguration. My name is Soleil Vera, I'm 13, and I'm from Crown Heights, Brooklyn. I feel like I'm part of history now, so if my grandkids ask me, what have you done in the lifetime, um, I'm going to say, first thing I'm going to say is perform for the first African-American president. Hello, my name is Chioni Sobakar, but everyone calls me Chi Chi, I'm 13 years old, and I'm from Brooklyn, New York. I play alto saxophone. And tell me how you feel about heading to Washington, D.C. for the inauguration. Oh, my God, it's, it's so nerve-wracking. You're nervous, you don't want to mess up, but then again, you want to have fun, play for your president, so it's kind of cool. And that's it for this week's Cityscape, the first of 2009. I'm George Bodarki. My thanks to producer McCall Neria. Have a great weekend.